That was a, uh, I don't know, I guess different people here who um, at different stages of life. Some of you have uh, been brought up in the church and in Sunday school and maybe with Christian parents and John 3.16 is uh, incredibly familiar to you and maybe you got that sense. I, I don't know, I just got a little sense there as you read, you came to verse 16 and you started reading, for God so loved the world. I don't know, an incredible sense of nostalgia hit me then that uh, I know that verse. I know that verse very, very well. Now, maybe you do know that verse, maybe you don't. It doesn't matter. It's, um, it's in front of you. It's in your Bible. We're going to look at it briefly now. Some people have described it as the gospel in a nutshell. Some people have described John chapter 3, verse 16, as the Bible in miniature. And uh, for very good reason. We see in this verse, I guess, the great truth of the gospel, condensed, boiled down into a very few words, 25 words, in fact. It's often seen at football matches. I don't know if you've ever been watching TV and suddenly in the crowd you see on the screen a... uh, a lone Christian man or woman with a little banner, John 3.16, scrolled on it. Have you ever seen that at the FA Cup? Or um, You see it on merchandise. We were, sitting, <laughs> we were sitting around at Christchurch Central the other week eating some quite vile-tasting Vietnamese sweets. Nothing against Vietnamese, but their sweets are not quite what I would call sweets. And printed on the bottom of the packet was John 3.16. I don't know, must have been a Christian company and wanted to get uh, the message out there. Um, Some of you may be familiar with Tim Tebow, if I'm saying his name correctly. 2009, he was a quarterback and he wore, you know, that black, um, the eye black that sometimes sportsmen wear under their cheeks, on their cheekbones, under their eyes. And on his, uh, on this side here, he had John. And then on this side, he had 316. Uh, when he led the Florida Gators to victory. And that image went round the world, and Tim Tebow reckons that 94 million people Googled John chapter 3, verse 16 during the game. It was a pretty cool moment, he said. It's incredibly famous. It is one of those verses that people say, I know that verse. But often things that we know, uh, we haven't, looked at them very carefully so it's a great chance now to to look at this uh this verse which is a real big deal for christians because in one sentence we have the summary of some of the most important bible truths that you and i could ever handle john 316 announces the good news as i said in 25 words that means you can tweet john 316 any tweeters here today Anybody tweet? Anybody tweeting now? You could tweet John 3.16 in 25 words, including spaces. It's 125 characters, including spaces. You could write, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you're tweeting, do do that right now. If you can listen and tweet. We've, um, we've lost a bit of power, which is fine. Don't worry. 
it means that the last hymn, you're going to have to sing it from memory. So there's a little test coming up later on. Um, and Ian had pro- provided some really lovely graphics, which maybe were too twee or, or quaint, and so that's why they're not up. But, um, but I just have three very simple points. I didn't want to make it complicated today because here we just have a beautiful summary of great Bible truth, and it, it deserves to be kept simple. So just three things which you perhaps remember. And the first is this, that God loves the people of the world. Oh, we're up there, but we're not there. That's fine. So if you, you, could, if you want, I won't mind if you just every so often just look back. It's a very nice graphic, you'll admit. Thank you, Ian. <laughs> God loves the people of the world. I've just got three, three graphics, so you won't have to do much twisting, don't worry. God loves the people of the world. Now, that may be old news for you, something that you already believe, something you don't need convincing of. Most people believe that God loves people. I mean, that's his job, isn't it? It's something we expect for God to love people. But I want you to notice something important in this verse. It doesn't actually say that God loves people. It says God loves the world. For God so loved the world. Who or what is the world that God loves? Well, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John and who uh, wrote chapter 3, verse 16 that we're looking at now, had a certain kind of people in mind when he talked about, for God so loved the world. And you see this when you read the rest of the book something that I'd strongly encourage you to do. If you're not very familiar with Christianity, if this is a bit new to you, you can't find, I don't think, a better explanation of what the Christian message is all about and who Jesus really is and why he came than the Gospel of John. So give it a read. If you'd like one, we've got some here that we'll happily give you. John's Gospel. And you'll see as you read through, John often uses the word The world. But he didn't mean planet Earth. We look at a verse like this and we think, wow, God's love must be incredible. It must be so wonderful because the world is so big. God loved a great big world. But actually, John's use of the word world here really is not primarily about it being a big place. Only in three or four passages of John does he say it's a big place. You might remember the last uh, two times it appears in in the gospel at the end. Um, It's a world that can hold a lot of books. He's talking about even if uh, um, everything that had been written in the world. uh, So it's a big place that can hold a lot of books. But, But here in the 70 or so other times that John uses this word world... Uh, in his gospel, he's not meaning a big world, a big place. John is simply saying it's a bad place, a bad world. So when we come to John 3.16 and it says that God loves the world, it means that God loves people who don't love him back, people who take him for granted. 
People who would avoid him at all costs and ignore him and who don't care about him whatsoever and couldn't give two hoots about his commands. People who, who actually hate him and live as if he was irrelevant or even dead. I love the songs we've been singing today. It's as if you've tapped into my song data bank of all my favourites and uh, you've sung them today. Fantastic. I love the imagery of that song. Do you remember the song we sang? Um, Once your enemy now seated at your table. You might get the idea that I, I love tables with food on and times of hospitality and sharing meals. I do think they're really important. And you read the Bible, you'll see that meals are really important. And you'll see that salvation, that, 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 that heaven, that salvation is really often pictured as a great banquet that we're invited to. But we're God's enemies. <laughs> but the gospel says we can be seated at his table. I think the imagery there is of that, that fascinating story way back in the Old Testament when David was um, troubled by Saul, the king. And uh, David was um, harassed and attempted murder happened on more than one occasion. David was more than on one occasion. Tried to, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his javelin. Well, eventually Saul died. David became the king. But there was a relative of the old king Saul, the enemies of David, Mephibosheth, he was, um, he was lame, lame in both feet. And there's that beautiful picture where Mephibosheth, who is really an enemy of, of the king, King David, who does not deserve to be near the king, but David invites him to his table. And there is Mephibosheth with both of his lame feet firmly tucked under the table ensconced into the family he belongs once your enemy now seated at the table god loves that kind of person god loves people who who stay at home on sundays instead of going to church because they can't be bothered with god they're not interested in his word god loves these people he loves the irreligious non-christians god loves the world. But he also loves those who are at church, but have hard hearts, cynical hearts, hypocritical, cold, formal, unloving hearts. John 3.16 says that God loves all people, even those who make him angry as they disobey and ignore him. God loves the poor. God loves the rich. He loves men. He loves women. He loves boys. He loves girls. God loves the older people here today. He loves the newborn dozing in his mother's arms. He loves the strong and the healthy. He loves the weak and the sick, the abandoned and the broken. God loves the educated and the illiterate. He loves those from every people group, whether black or white or brown, whatever shade. God loves the self-disciplined 
and he loves the addict. He loves the high and mighty, and he loves the low and powerless and oppressed. God loves the world. God loves liars. He loves thieves. He loves people on the make. He loves adulterers. He loves pimps and prostitutes, rapists and paedophiles. And he loves the victims of sexual predators. God loves murderers. And he loves their helpless victims. God loves the sexually immoral. God loves the greedy. He loves the waster, the employed, the unemployed, the successful, self-made business person. God loves the homeless, the wealthy landowner. God loves the divorced. He loves the happily married, the miserably married, the single, the widowed. God loves those who bow down to idols and he loves those who bow down to sports teams. He loves those who are addicted to pornography. God loves atheists. God loves Muslims. God loves Buddhists and Hindus. He loves those who take his name in vain. God loves the world. He loves evil people. He loves his enemies. He loves those who hate him. He loves the gentle soul that wouldn't swat a fly. He loves the selfish, the mean and the proud, the vicious. He loves all and he loves you no matter who you are or what you've done. When God says, world, I love you, what does he mean? Well, he, he doesn't mean something soft and gooey that uh, kind of translates as heaven would be so lonely without you. That's not what God is saying. On the one hand, this world, you and I, stand under his judgment. The judgment of God hangs over us. We only have to read just a little bit further. God did not send his, world, his son into the world, verse 17, to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. The world stands under the judgment of God, and yet God loves us anyway. He loves us not because we are so unattractive, But it is profoundly our unattractiveness that must be overcome. And his love will overcome our unattractive, ugly sin. His love will not leave us in the repulsive state that we are in. His love will lift us up from being under his wrath and into a place where we are as loved, as welcomed, as accepted as his own holy, pure Son, Jesus. Now that is astonishing. God 
loves the people of the world. But secondly, still no there, you can turn around, it's just up there. God shows his love to the world by giving his one and only son. I told you I was keeping it simple today, didn't I? God shows his love to the world by giving his one and only son. God did not love us in words alone. The most important demonstration of God's love for sinners is the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Giving Jesus to the world was an act of radical, unthinkable love. We sang earlier a, one of my favourite hymns, a Wesley hymn. Um, um, it's just gone out of my head. Um, Tis finished, the Messiah dies. Cut off for sins, but not his own. Uh, John Wesley wrote that, along with thousands of other hymns. For those of you who don't know, John Wesley was a hymn writer and also a preacher who travelled thousands of miles. Did he ever come to Rotherham? I'm sure he must have done. Um, he came to Sheffield, but we wouldn't let him preach in the cathedral, so he had to go and preach in the, uh, in the marketplace, which often happened in those days. But in, the, uh, in 1742, he wrote in his journal, as he uh, went on his travels, uh, we left Burstall, Burstall's in West Yorkshire. Anybody from near Burstall? Heard of Burstall? Yeah, okay, I used to uh, live near Burstall. We left Burstall on Friday, and we came to Newcastle upon Tyne. A little warning for those from the northeast, there might not be very good press now for... Newcastle. We came to Newcastle upon Tyne at about six, and after a short refreshment, says John in his journal, we walked into the town. I was surprised. So much drunkenness, cursing, and swearing, even from the mouths of little children. So much I never remember to have seen and heard before in so small a compass of time. And then he writes these words. Surely this place is ripe for... What do you think his next word is? Sure, he's seen all the drunkenness, the... The, the immorality, the, the, the cursing. And he says, surely this place is ripe for, <laughs> that's what I would have said, ripe for judgment. But he doesn't, because John Wesley knows the gospel. Um, he says, surely this place is ripe for him who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's a bad place. It's ripe for him. God sent into this world, not a judge, but a rescuer, a saviour, his only son, one who came not to condemn and not to judge, but to be condemned and to be judged. He had every right to condemn us, but instead God chose to give his own dear son, Jesus, so that we could have our feet under his table 
so that we could belong. Call to mind the person you love the most in the world. Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's uh, your spouse or your child, a friend, a brother, a sister. Now call to mind the person toward whom you have the worst feelings. Maybe you have an enemy. Maybe it's someone you work with, or a neighbour, or someone you've never even met, but a politician or celebrity, but you just, you can't stand this person. Seeing this person, hearing about this person, being around this person, it's like chewing sand. Suppose this person that you really dislike is in terrible need, let's say, They're in hospital in critical condition, needing kidney transplant in order to survive. Would you be willing to help that person that you hate so strongly in costly ways? Would you give thousands of pounds to help that person? Would you volunteer to donate a kidney to that person? Would you ask the person who you most love in the world to donate a kidney? Would you ask the person you love the most to do this if you knew that the surgery would result in unthinkable suffering and loss? Would you sacrifice the person you love the most so that the person you dislike the most could live? Imagine saying goodbye to the person you love most, seeing them wheel through the hospital door and then seeing your enemy come out that same door sometime later. Would you do that? Suppose the person you dislike most was about to be sentenced to a place of eternal punishment forever. Suppose you could rescue that person by having the person you love the most beaten up by sadistic soldiers, mocked and spat upon, whipped across his back and legs and chest and then nailed by his hands to a Roman cross until he died. Would you do that? And then to see the judgment of the whole world put upon him. Or her. This is what God did when He gave His Son Jesus. God did the unthinkable. This gift is the greatest evidence of His love for sinners. It's the greatest evidence of His love for you. God did this for you. The Bible says, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, that God loves. Uh, At just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what God 
did for the world. That's what he did for us, for you. How did God do this? God sent his son from heaven to become a man and die for our sake. We're all under death sentence because of our sin, our rebellion against God. He's the perfect judge who does not allow the guilty to go unpunished. He does not overlook sin. He does not turn a blind eye. That's why John 3.16 talks very clearly about the possibility of perishing. The perishing is not just in the sense of dying physically, but perishing forever, being condemned by God and sent to a place of eternal sorrow and rejection and condemnation. So that sinful people like you and I would not have to perish, God sent his one and only son, Christ, to live the perfect life of obedience to God that you and I could never have lived, and then to suffer and die, to be nailed to a cross and carry on himself the full weight of our sin, the judgment, the burden, the condemnation that we deserve. He took the fall for you. The Bible says that you can never be good enough to atone for your own sins. So Jesus atoned for us when he suffered and died at the cross. The Father laid on him all our rebellion, all our perversity, all our pride, all our iniquity, all my sin, all your sin laid on him. And Jesus could do this because he is a man like no other. No sinful human being could die on the cross to set others free from their sins. That's why John says that it's Jesus, God's one and only Son. Jesus is God's one, unique, specially loved Son. The Father loves Jesus infinitely. Jesus is special to the Father, beyond what you and I can fully understand. The measure of God's love for his radically sinful creation is Jesus. And again, when you pick up your John's Gospel and you read through, you'll see in John that he spends a major part of his Gospel developing the theme of love. But primarily, it's the Father's love for the Son, for his own Son. God's love for his Son comes first And his love for you and me is an overflow of that love for his son. The father's love for his son is an eternal, perfect love. So the fact that he gave his one and only son for us cannot be stressed enough. We cannot make too much of it. It's incredible. Don Carson, who's a preacher and a writer and a theologian, and a songwriter does everything. He said, we do not begin to explore the dimensions of God's love 
until we explore the nature of the Godhead. And simply what he means by that is that when we begin to understand the Father's love for the Son, the fact that they have always been in perfect unity and, and the love of the Father for, for the Son has, has been infinite and always will be, when we begin to understand that relationship, then we will see that his love for us in the giving of that Son, in the giving of the second person of the Trinity, is astonishing. He says again, um, we do not begin to explore the dimensions of God's love until we explore the ugliness of our own odious rebellion. God thus loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Maybe you've experienced things that make you doubt God's love for you. Perhaps you've suffered sexual abuse or you've had health problems or disabilities or just life has been tough. You've suffered failure after failure and perhaps people have let you down, rejected you. Life's been hard. Perhaps you grew up in a painful family situation or with no family or your parents ignored you. You may have suffered one setback and heartbreak and failure after another. Whatever happened, those things does not mean, those things do not mean that God does not love you. Because when God gave the world his beloved son, his one and only son, he left us in no doubt about his love for all people. His love for you. When you think of Christ on the cross, you should hear the Father saying, This is what I am willing to give for you. This is how much I love you. You should hear the Son saying from the cross, This is what I am willing to give for you. This is how much I love you. So, two amazing truths. God loves the world. He loves you. So does that mean that everything's now okay? God's shown his love by giving his son Jesus to die for our sin. So now everything's fine. Everything's done and dusted. We can just go on with our life and uh, pop into church every now and again, sing a song or two die, go to heaven. Well, John 3.16 has something more to say. There's an expectation of a response. Of course there is. We must respond to God's love. So John 3 verse 16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him. The expectation is to respond by trust. Believing. Faith. The word faith is banded around. It's the same word as believe or trust or commit or entrust. So my third and last point is this. You must believe in Christ. 
there's no it's kind of would be weird to stop there if we didn't have a response wouldn't it it doesn't make any sense to hear of god's love for the world for his enemies to hear that he's given his own dear son for us and not to respond it makes no sense so john says whoever believes in him notice he doesn't say try and earn that love Try and earn God's approval. Earn some merit with God. It doesn't say that. It says believe, trust in Christ. Because no one can be good enough for God. The Bible actually says if anyone thinks they are good enough for God, they will be rejected by him. John 3.16 says you must trust in Christ. And so my question is, have you ever done that? Have you ever trusted Christ? And are you now trusting Christ? Does, does each day begin with repentance and faith? And every step of your life, you turn from other things that you're trusting in to trust in Christ as your rescuer, as your saviour as the one who brings you to God and makes you right with God. It goes against all our instincts about how to gain God's approval and acceptance. We think that our good performance precedes God's acceptance and approval. It doesn't. John 3.16 tells us that God accepts us by his mercy, because of what his son did for us on the cross, not because of what we try to do to merit his acceptance. This is the gospel in a nutshell. This is the good news of Jesus. We cannot earn God's approval. It's a gift. Simply trust. Receive Christ. Do you believe that Christ is the one and only, the beloved Son of the Father? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your wrongdoing? That he was punished in your place? You will receive eternal life. The promise is there. Please don't think this is some kind of intellectual assent. It's a belief that is active that trusts, that understands, yes, but that trusts and that seeks to follow. Because if Jesus Christ is that saviour who has died and risen again and is the Lord, then what other response can it be but to believe and follow him? He is the Lord of every moment of my life. It makes no sense to say, Jesus is God in human form. He died for us, but I'm not going to do what he says. Life is mine to live. No one tells me what to do. Tragically, many are in that state. They profess one thing, but their lives demonstrate another thing. I urge you, in closing, to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. 
even before you leave this room. It can happen right now. Come and chat with me afterwards. Come and chat with somebody who has been at the front. Come and chat with Ian. If you'd like to speak to a specific person, just find them out. Maybe the person that you know here that is a Christian and, and, and knows about your situation and maybe prays for you and has told you about Christ. Speak with them. Don't leave it. Don't just know that verse. Don't even just love that verse. But respond today by putting your trust in Jesus and following him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that your love for your son is a perfect and a universally changing love because it means that we are loved too because you have given your own dear son for the world and that includes me, that includes us here, your enemies. We thank you that you have so loved us You've given the greatest of gifts. And we ask, please, that each person in this room will understand the extent to which they are loved, the extent to which they have rebelled. And all of us will put our faith, our trust in Jesus and follow him. In Jesus' name, amen.